Hi everyone, Jill Diarpino with um, Aftermath of Suicide. I've just been thinking about what I wanted to talk about tonight. And God, there's, you know, think about it. There's so many things we could all talk about, especially in um, the area of mental health. And um, But before I start, I do want to thank a couple of my sponsors, Alter New Media. They are a great marketing company if you need a marketing company. AlternewMedia.com as well as Joe at ClearPathThinking.com. Joe is excellent if you need a coach to help you along in figuring out where are you going in life now because there's a lot of change going on with COVID, people losing their jobs, their businesses having to move, and it's overwhelming on top of taking care of your kids, maybe elderly parents. Um, you know, so reach out to Joe. He's really A-plus at what he does. Uh, he can do the call through Zoom or if you're local, you know, meet up with you somewhere. So let me get back to what I wanted to talk about here Um I read this article by Sarah Epstein, and I thought, isn't this interesting, the title of this? And it says, are you too low maintenance? You know how you hear the word, wow, she's really high maintenance. Well, Jill, you're high maintenance. And, you know, sometimes you think, well, what does that mean? I mean, it, it, it sounds derogative, right? You almost want to say that, well, you know, are you saying that something's wrong with me? And no, that really doesn't mean that, but I think because we hear that more than anything, I don't think I've really heard, are you too low maintenance? But if you think about this, low maintenance can also not be good for you in many ways as far as, you know, it can really make you feel bad about yourself, self-loathing, um, fear of abandonment from people, because you're a people pleaser most of the time when you're low maintenance. It means, you know, you basically will tolerate more than most. So what I wanted to do was just read this article to you. And I think many might identify with seeing yourself in this and sort of, you know, what you can do to help yourself. So, you know, it says some people wear the term low maintenance as a badge of honor something to aspire to in their relationships. But it's important to distinguish between the term as neutral description and as a form of pressure that people use to keep their emotional needs in check. Sometimes low maintenance simply describes an aspect of a person's character. Some individuals are easy dinner companions because they love a wide range of cuisines. Some wear a simple style that lends itself to getting ready quickly, and others need little luggage to travel comfortably. These traits are aspects of a person, perfect person's excuse me, nature that make them easy to be around. But being low maintenance becomes problematic when it describes those who strive to be the easiest possible version of themselves, swallowing or withholding their feelings and rejecting the parts of themselves that may not go over well with others. These individuals may believe that their emotional experience renders them too much, crazy, or needy. 
Consider the woman who does not request the affection she needs in a romantic relationship for fear that her partner will say she's too demanding. Or what about the man who, when upset with a friend or family member, fails to speak his mind out of fear of being deemed dramatic? These striving to be this agreeable can be excellent givers, listeners, and peacemakers, but they may fear rejection or abandonment if they share their full range of emotions. Unlike, unlike the baggage-free traveler's easygoing nature, this form of low-maintenance behavior is a rejection and repression of self rather than the reflection of a person's true character. A person who has internalized the need to be low-maintenance in relationships may struggle to identify the emotions she diligently represses, ignores, or criticizes. If anger or sadness emerge, the low-maintenance person may only know to swallow or reject the emotion instead of noticing it and addressing the needs that the emotion reveals. The less the person can tolerate her own emotional experience, however, the more she will struggle, struggle to identify, articulate, and assert those needs in important relationships. The root of the problem, learning to be low maintenance is at its core, the process of learning to hide parts of the self deemed too messy or overwhelming for others. This withholding is frequently learned in childhood. Some children learn to withhold or downplay their feelings from parents who struggle to respond appropriately to their children's emotions. For instance, a parent may repeatedly shut down children when they were upset, saying, thing like, saying things like, it's not that bad, enough already, or get it together. Other children may have heard messaging from a peer, partner, teacher, or coach that were dramatic or sensitive. This feedback can lead children to voice a few needs as possible in order to create a persona who is easy to be around. Still, other children are raised in chaotic or abusive environments in which they need to grow up quickly, becoming prematurely self-sufficient and learning not to rely on others to meet their emotional needs. Low maintenance becomes a way of life, one that's hard to shake. Changing these patterns involves unlearning the label too much and learning how to take up the space. Several steps can help you to make the important transition. Number one. Identify emotional needs. People keen on keeping a low maintenance as possible may become so good at stifling their needs that they struggle to identify them. Getting in touch with yourself may involve asking questions like, what do I feel right now? What do I need from this relationship? How do I deserve to be treated? What boundaries serve me? As you start to get to know yourself, you may struggle to identify your experience or encounter a voice calling you dramatic for expressing your sadness, anger, or feelings of distress. It helps to slow things down and remember that there is a difference between being needy and having your needs met. It can also help to investigate how you came to be so low maintenance. That can involve asking yourself, who taught me that I'm dramatic? When did I learn that I'm too much? When was the first time I felt that way? How has that label affected the way I live my life? Does it still ring true? Questions like these may be best explored with a therapist. 
From there, you can reconsider such experiences and validate your own emotional reality. Advocate for yourself. After allowing the internal voice to reemerge and interrogating its origins, you may feel ready to advocate for yourself. Asking for what you need might sound like, I need you to ask me about my addition to telling me about yourself. That joke really hurt my feelings. Those kinds of jokes don't work for me anymore. I'd like you to reach out the next time you want to hang out instead of my always initiating. I don't like that movie genre. Let's find something both that we'll both enjoy. After years of chronic self-neglect, this may feel unnatural and it may be generate backlash or confusion from friends and family who are not used to hearing those expressions or advo advocating for yourself like that. In fact, these relationships may have benefited from the withholding. It is easier to be in a relationship with a person who needs very little. Dealing with loved ones' responses may be the most difficult part of the whole exercise. It requires eternal strength to remember that emotional expression is okay and healthy is so voicing your needs. And if you're used to asking for nothing, asking for anything may feel selfish. Chronically, low-maintenance individuals can tell unhelpful stories about themselves. They think things like, I'm too much. If anybody knew who I really was, they would reject me. I'm so dramatic. Why can't I get it together? Other people never feel this way. They just get over it. Why do I have to be so sensitive? These self-recriminations keep dangerously low-maintenance people feeling bad about themselves. Changing these narratives means reflecting and moving toward gentler language. It may also include a deep dive into where the narratives begin as a way for you to start rewriting your story. When so much of our culture encourages us not to need much and flings high maintenance as an insult, it can be re revolutionary to stand up for yourself and embrace your emotional needs. I thought that was an interesting article because most of my life, you know, I've heard, you know, Jill, you're high maintenance. And, and I'd laugh at that. It wasn't, I, I never took it as, um, you know, a put down. But you'll hear that a lot, right, about women mostly. Oh, my God, this woman's so high maintenance or my wife's high maintenance because she likes nice things and she wants to go to nice places or she needs she loves spas and she takes time to get dressed and do her hair and whatever it is. So, you know, it takes longer than what I just mentioned in that article where there's those people that can just throw on something real quick, brush their teeth and they're ready to go. And so those people think that that is more self-accepting, right? But in a lot of ways, as I just read, it isn't always. You know, if you feel that little about yourself that you don't feel it's okay for you to take the time to get dressed, do your makeup, whatever, for guys, you know, shave, um, whatever it is that you like to do and not have to be in a hurry and rush to please other people. You know, people pleasers are usually very unhappy people. And I've found this to be true in many that I've known throughout my life as children. But they didn't really express they were people pleasers until they got older. 
and then they finally started to change. But think about how many years they've lived their life through pleasing other people instead of themselves. There's a way to please other people and yourself without being selfish, okay? You know, people think, oh, well, if I, I'm always just pleasing myself, I'm selfish. Well, no, you're not. There, there's a big difference in being selfish, and we've met those people. We know what being selfish is. It's me, me, me. You know, it, all they do is talk about themselves. They want everything their way. Um, if it's, let's go to dinner, okay, I'm going to choose where we're going and what movie we're going to watch. Those are all, you know, my way or the highway. But for the most part, um, you know, it's okay to please yourself. It's okay to come up with, you know, suggestions and things. And it's okay to have high standards. Um, you know, I remember reading a book and... This is funny because a lot of my friends or women would ask, you know, what's a book that you would recommend because I can't seem to either find a nice guy or, you know, and even though they have, but right, what do you think is a nice guy? Another woman would think he's not. So it's a book by Steve Harvey who I just find him, he's hysterical, number one, but he, he cracks me up. And this book is called Act Like a Woman, Think Like a Man. And I've read it several times, and I would recommend this to my listeners to uh, for women that really can't find the right relationship or have been, they go through them over and over, and they wonder, you know, what part of this is me? Because the common denominator is yourself, right? If things aren't working over and over and over. But he said this, he said, men like standards, and women, if you don't have any, get some. So it's okay to have standards. Men like confidence. They like a woman that knows what she wants without being aggressive. Remember, there's always that that middle space. It's not one extreme to the other. You don't want to be a doormat, but, you know, also, you know, being, um, getting the whip out <laughs> and chains, I mean, you know, to your guy, that's, that's the other extreme. So I just thought I'd read that article because I know there's a lot of people out there that really, I see this often, you know, I, I watch them. I, I watch how they just are so agreeable. They're called amiables and they'll just do anything to be liked, anything to get along, anything to fit in. And, you know, they don't want to rock the boat. And so they just sort of settle for being low maintenance, thinking that's the better way to be. Because high maintenance has always had that that connotation of being a real pain in the ass or, you know, oh, high maintenance, you know. So I'm going to end with, guess what, guys? I'm high maintenance <laughs> and I'm okay with it. And if people aren't, you know, that are in my life, that's okay. They they don't need to be around me, but I've never made people feel in any way, I don't believe, that I'm such high maintenance that, you know, they can't stand my company. Um, so I just thought I'd throw that out there. You know, it's food for thought, and I think it's a really good thought to think about. 
for many of you, especially now through this time and period of this year where it's killed a lot of people's, you know, um, self-worth, what you think about yourself during this COVID year of losing your job, you know, your career, um, totally gone, especially for men. Your, your job, your career is your identity to men. And when they lose that, they're lost. It's a big thing to lose for a man, more so than a female. But I'm not saying that it isn't for the female. Um, so, you know, think about this. Give yourself some credit. Give yourself some time and that it's okay to have higher standards. Actually, try it sometime. You just might like it. It might change your life. It may open a door to something else. So I'm going to sign off. And as I always leave you all, you know, take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself and to other people, especially now. It is so, so needed. Take care. Hi, Margie. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me okay? Great. I could hear you great. Am I okay for you? Yes, perfect. Okay. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you to my listeners for joining in. This is Jill with Aftermath of Suicide. And today I invited Margie Thompson to speak. Um, and we met on Instagram, um, actually, sadly, you know, mutually with both of us losing a son to suicide. And Margie's story is a little different than mine. Um, she found her son. Uh, so, you know, to those out there, I wanted Margie to speak to that and, you know, what that was like and maybe to help those parents or loved ones that are struggling with that, um, you know, what she would suggest um, and then I'm going to, you know, ask her some questions as well. Um, Margie, do you have an email that you'd like to give out in case anybody has questions for you or I could sure. reach out to me? Sure. It's, um, they can either reach me via the Facebook um, site for the book, which is Finding Color in the Darkness on Facebook. And then um, there's a Gmail that is Finding Color in the Darkness at gmail.com. Okay. But the face, Facebook is more active, I have to say. Okay. And Margie did write a book called Finding Color in the Darkness, which is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, which she speaks about her journey and kind of a journal through the, the story of her son and the battles that he's struggled with. So, um, so let me first ask you, Margie, when you first found him, that what did you feel right then? Um, shock. And uh, it's, I, when I wrote the book, I wrote about that moment that was initially the very beginning of the book. And my publisher had said um, that the writing was raw and um, gripping, but to write an, an introduction to say who I was and why I wrote the book and then an epilogue. So those two parts sort of, you know, bookended the book, um, yeah. figuratively. And, yeah. but it, 
it, to me, it, it is that life changing moment of when you, you know, your, your world is shattered as you know it. And mm-hmm. where do you go from there? And, and at that, that point, you, you don't know where you're going. You just know that everything you, you knew and, and accepted to be your truth has just, you know, ended and you have to figure out how to move on from that point. So that was an obvious starting point in the book for me. And, and did, I did, you, did you start crying or were you just in shock? I was in shock. I was in mm-hmm. shock. I mean, I was crying out and right. screaming and pleading, but I, you know, then I just uh, fell into a state of sort of catatonic shock going from finding him and following the ambulance to the, to the hospital um, alone in my car and walking into the emergency room and having them look, I was the only one there, which was ironic because it's always filled, but, um, and it was sent to a family room and it was strange because he was the only one that was living at home with me. So the only person here in the family was, mm-hmm. I knew he'd be gone, but I, they wouldn't confirm that he was dead until I got to the hospital and, and spoke to a doctor and I, and I knew it. So it was just all those flashbacks, thinking back to those, you know, snippets in time that are, that make the, you know, your up your life sure. moments, your changing life moments where, um, stick in my memory no matter I mean even though I was in such a catatonic state they will forever be engraved in my mind absolutely you can never forget that moment that that happened whether it's the Mm -hmm. text that I got from my son you just never you never you never forget where you were what time it was um and so what I'm going to ask you to do is read a passage in your book where you bound your son and you know kind of like you said what were you what you were thinking downstairs to sort of check on him but what you're you know so go ahead and and read that uh to the listeners okay november 16th 2016 i'm holding my baby boy in my arms and although he will always be my baby boy he is no longer a baby he just celebrated his 24th birthday one month and one day ago on october 15th His birth began with me, through me. Giving life to a child is the most wonderful experience a person can have in this lifetime. He's my second child, the youngest of my two sons. I remember holding him as he took his first breath. Now I'm quite certain as I wait for the ambulance to arrive that he has taken his last breath. How is it that I am still able to breathe? When I think back to that day, I don't recall the sound of an ambulance. After the initial panic upon finding him, an eerie calm seemed to possess me. I knew John was dead and I was not. Margie, stop just a second. We're kind of losing you on the connection. Are you somewhere in a, can you go in an area where you have good connection? Doing this? Part of the okay. house. <laughs> it sounded muffled. Maybe you were speaking too close. I'm not sure. Can you go back just a few sentences and repeat that from there? Um, I knew John was dead okay. and I was numb somewhere deep inside of me. I knew this day might one day come. I had feared it off and on since John was 17. I buried that feeling and fought desperately to maintain my positive attitude belief system, convincing myself that somehow This denial could save my son. I wake up suddenly alarmed, thoughts racing through my mind. Where am I? What's wrong? Wait, did something happen? Flashback. 
John hanged himself. He literally ended his life. He's dead, gone, like he's actually dead. Oh my God, and why are the thoughts in my head sounding like something my students would say? Literally, like, and like, what does it matter? My son killed himself. Help me, please, God, help me. Please make it not be true. Please, no, this can't be. Why? The tears are streaming down my face. Where are the tissues? I seldom ever bought any before John died. I didn't need them. I rarely, and like, I mean, rarely get colds. Since November 16th, 2016, the night John ended his life, I always keep a box of tissues with me, even in the car, especially in the car. I cry every day, every time I'm alone and sometimes in public. I might cry for only a minute or two or at certain very difficult times for hours. It seems to be for shorter periods of time lately as I adjust to my new reality. This reality is foreign and isolating. My baby boy, I want him back. The flashback is vivid. The image of John in the storage closet in his room. His body is curved in a semi-kneeling position with an extension cord wrapped tightly around his precious neck. My eyes rapidly follow the length of the cord that is looped around a rafter. His skin is gray. He's motionless. His hands are limp. He was with me in the car ride home from Boston just an hour before, very much alive, crying, depressed, distraught, but alive. I scream, no, John, stop joking. No, why? Please don't do this. Please take it back. I'm too late. He's done it. There is no going back. Why didn't I check on him? Urgent thoughts run through my mind. Call 911. Untie the cord. God, no. The cord is too tight. Why don't we have a phone up here? I run downstairs, grab the phone and the scissors. Wait, I can't cut the cord. It's electrical. Where does it lead? I scream at the operator. My son hanged himself. Please hurry. Help me. She instructs me to check for a pulse and to hold him up. How can I hold the phone, hold him and check for a pulse? There's no pulse. He's gray and he's lifeless. I manage to untie the cord and he falls to the floor. Dead weight, literally. The operator instructs me to perform CPR. In my state of panic, I perform mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. His neck is stiff and the air I blow in blows back in my face. His airways are closed. When I explain this, she corrects me and says to pump his chest, hard and fast. So I do, frantically, but I know it is too late. I don't want to know, but I know. Part of me knew this day would one day come, but what mother wants to accept that her child, her youngest child, her baby, would one day hang himself? A mother's job is to protect her children. We give life to them. We nurture them, both physically and emotionally. That is our most important biological role. How could it go so horribly wrong? Why would the child to whom I gave life choose to end it? The feelings of failure are overwhelming. I would, as would most mothers, give my life to save my child's life. I would sacrifice everything for my children. I remind myself that I had told John just a few weeks before we made the irreversible decision to end his life that, as his mom, I would do anything within my power to take away his anguish. I hated to watch him suffer as he did. I told him that I would own his pain so that he could be free of it. No decent mother wants to witness her child in such despair. He heard my words. Little did I know that he would take them like literally. His pain is now mine and he is at peace. Wow, that is powerful. That is not only powerful, it's (laughs) gut-wrenching. You you know, it's... you read this like it's just some book of if you're reading about just a book of someone else. But this was your son. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, oh, of course, it chokes me up because not not that I found my son, but of course, I lost one as well. And so 
what would you say um, to those out there that think about hanging themselves, think about taking their life? Well, if, if I could go, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We all know that. But mm-hmm. for, for people suffering from depression who are close to taking their lives, you have you have a mental a medical illness rather and cancer and and other illnesses have gone down like heart disease have gone down in the last 30 years. The suicide rate has gone up and we need to understand whether you're you're the person suffering or you're a loved one of the person suffering, that uh, mental illness is a medical illness. It's an illness of the brain. And there's no blood test for it, but there are scans that will show that the neurotransmitters are not properly connected. And there is no shame in asking for help. And until we can understand that we need to support people as best we know how, we might not know how, but we can really just listen to people and let them say what they're feeling and, and develop a plan to be able to talk to, whether it's a trust, a loved one, someone in your family or a professional, but know before you get to that place that you, you will have certain things that you can say to the person so that there is a plan put in place to, to help you through that period because it, it won't stay that way, but you can go through depressive episodes but it will, and they may come back, but you can get through that. And we just want people to stay because it does shatter lives. And Jill, I know you do the same thing that we are. You have to find meaning in the aftermath of your child's death. Mm-hmm. And, and you have that choice of you can just stay and, and be a walking dead person essentially because your, your life feels over. And, but, or you can find some way to honor um, your child. But, and to honor our sons, we've tried to help other people understand that this is a medical illness and deserves the same attention that we give to other illnesses. And just as an example, when I, um, I knew John was in a program that was a partial hospitalization program that lasted three weeks and it was extended to six weeks because he wasn't getting the help he needed. And I had a very busy work schedule as a French teacher teaching multiple levels of language. So I mean, multiple levels of the language. So, um, I didn't feel like I could take the time off, but when I knew that they had extended the program and I could see that John was getting darker and and deeper into that rabbit hole, I went to my supervisor and said that I thought my son was a suicide risk and I was crying in front of her. And I said, I think I need to take time off. And she sat there with her hands folded across her um, waist and looked coldly at me. And she said, I don't know what to tell you, but she had insisted that we go through her, not to the administrators to ask for anything we needed. So I just thought, okay, this doesn't merit time off. And I look back at that and I think, you know, dear God, if, if he'd had cancer, I would have stood up for that and she would have mm-hmm. understood it. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a big, you know, it's sad, isn't it? it really is sad. And, and so mm-hmm. we need to let people know there's nothing to be ashamed of. Number one, if you're the person who suffers from, from mental illness and grief mimics or is like mental illness, it has the same mm-hmm. You know, debilitating effects. So we know what that feels like. Um, but I didn't at the time. I've always been an optimist and, and I've had times where I felt sad or, you know, situationally depressed. But I just did, I always thought growing up was a phase and I was, I was supported, but I didn't quite understand or accept that it was a, a permanent condition that had to be managed. I didn't realize that. I thought he could go out of it. And I did see that toward the end, but by that time, 
he was really far gone. And I, I wish I could go back as we all do and have been more proactive. And that night I certainly should have, you know, there was more that I could have done. I, when we got home that night, I called up to him three times and no answer. And I thought, just let him sleep it off. He'd been opening up and changing behavior is another sign of when somebody has been shut down and they suddenly start becoming talkative. So, you know, there's so many regrets that I've had to live with, but I do know that it's a medical illness now and I, I have to forgive myself for, for doing the best that I knew how to do at the time, but I would right. just, I will live the rest of my days educating others of right. really listen to you, your children and to others when they are suffering. Right. I know many people want to kind of shush that off and, you know, like even just depression. Oh, you know, go outside, take a walk or take a yoga class or like that's just going to cure you, you know, and a disease is manageable just like alcoholism. You know, if if you do something for it, if you're proactive, it is manageable. I mean, I've met Mm -hmm. tons of people with different areas and ranges of a mental disease. And, and like I always state, you know, it's a disease just like cancer, yet it doesn't get the respect and the attention that it really does deserve because it's invisible. Right, right. And yeah, so let me take a break real quick. I just want to thank a couple of my sponsors, and then I have a couple more questions for you. Um, I want to thank alternewmedia.com. They uh, were a marketing company that I used, and they are fantastic. Um, They can do just about anything. So please reach out to them, as well as clearpaththinking.com. Joe is a life coach, and I have to tell you right now with COVID and people's lives upside down, losing their business, their jobs, their careers, a lot of people can use help in a new direction. And where do I start? You know, change isn't comfortable. So reach out to Joe at Clear Path Thinking. Um, so back to Margie. Um, so your son suffered with bipolar, correct? Yes. Yes. And post-traumatic stress. Okay. And if you could give, what would you say to a loved one parent that was in your place that kind of recognized that, but sort of was in denial and didn't, what would you say now recommending for them to do for that loved one? Um, to, to be proactive. So they haven't, you're saying somebody who has not lost a child to suicide, but has a, someone at risk or, or someone right. love it. Exactly. Just to really listen and um, have the conversations. And I think we need to start, there's a, a campaign afoot to have conversations with, with children when they're younger about sadness, calling it sadness at the time, um, and asking them about their emotions. But we talk to our children about sex and drugs and alcohol. We need to talk to them about their mental health as well, because it's very much a part of all of your health. Your you know um, medical mm-hmm. health is very much a part of it. and Especially the, now with COVID and a lot of absolutely. kids. Yeah teenagers at home right and that that conversation needs to be normalized and to share your own experiences and how you got through it is great but you can't um there's no one size fits all for depression and that's Mm -hmm. a key thing and it's it's much um for cancer you can have textbook uh, cases of certain types of cancer you can't for depression because there are so many other comorbid 
and possibilities and there's so many different levels of it so there's no what even if you had to have had depression have been able to to overcome it you can't expect that somebody that you're talking to will have the same experience and i've encountered these people along my journey after losing john who have said oh well i was able to overcome my depression and i was hospitalized and was able to overcome it. that's great for you and you might have overcome it for now, but you don't know what the future might yes. hold. And right. you can't put your experience on somebody else's. And um, it's um, dismissive to the person who's, who is suffering. So you really need to keep an open mind and ask them questions and really listen to what they have to say and look for the warning signs. And the warning signs would be, um, are they smoking too much, drinking too much, um, starting to abuse drugs? Are they losing their appetite? Are they not able to sleep? Are they, are they, do they have... Um, disrupted speech? Do they sleep too much? Do they eat too much? I mean, there could be any number of, of possibilities, but, and people who seem to always sometimes be the happy person, sometimes mm-hmm. they're the person that's the most depressed because they're trying to hide their pain. That was so, my son. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That yep. was my son to most who knew him, but I would see mm-hmm. his pain and he would yeah. come home. Um, mm-hmm. So we just it, making that conversation normal, no matter what they might present, like because they, as we say, it's the invisible illness. But making it a normal conversation, when you say to somebody, "How are you doing? I'm doing great." No, really, I mean, I'm. I know I'm struggling because this is going on. And what? How does that affect you? So you can find ways to sort of open up a bigger conversation, just than how are you doing, <laughs> and thinking that right. that's, that answer is fine. Because many people could just say, "Oh, I'm fine." And that yeah, asks is so busy that they just go, okay, that's good. And they move on when they really yeah. weren't, you know how you can say, how are you? But you're not really waiting for the answer. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just a, everybody's, you know, it's, it's a, a habit to say it's that. A greeting. Yeah. Or to ask. Yes. And that's why I, I, you're right. I mean, you need to really, especially with someone that you know, you see something's not right. You mm-hmm. know, and, and they tell you I'm fine. Um, right. You know, most people that suffer like that feel a burden to others. They don't yeah. want to put that on you. You know, I'm better off dead. People would be better off without yeah. me. Uh, they think that way a lot. And, they you do. know, so, yeah, uh, you know, if, uh, of course, it's easy for us to say, you know, here's what I would have done. But mm-hmm. we didn't, right? We didn't right. push enough or do enough when we saw those signs. And now, of course, I say the same thing. Had I, could I go back, I would have done a little bit more, approached Mike differently. Um, mm-hmm. But suicide, guys out there listening, is never the answer. Never. I can't say that enough. You destroy the lives of people around you. And one suicide affects about 115 people in -hmm. their circle. So it's a ripple effect. And, you know, I can't I can't stress that enough out there. So we're not saying if you feel like this and, you know, I want to take away your pain. So go ahead and end your life. No. There no. are, you know, the, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You've got the, everything's at your fingertip and it is on my site at my Instagram, Aftermath of Suicide. It's also on my website, aftermathofsuicide.com. Um, but, you know, both Margie and I, having now been in this 
other side of the fence, um, sure, we can all look back and think, God, you know, now, and, and we see it more. We see more. Don't you, Margie? Yeah. I can, I can pick out people that aren't well. And I can see they might pretend, but they're not pretending to me. But here's a funny, not a funny fact, but an interesting fact. Um, As a teacher, having studied this for my master's in education, we we knew to look for people who might suffer from different types of depression. And I could easily identify it in any student and was uh, very patient with these students and would let them complete their work and hand it in late or excuse them from class if they had too much anxiety and wouldn't call on them, that kind of thing, and would check in their parents and counselors. But in my own son... It, yeah. it should have been so obvious to me. And I just was in, in denial because it was too painful a concept. So that's the other thing I would say to parents out there, like right. do not be the ostrich with your head in the sand, be proactive. And you can't force people into therapy and you can't force them to, to open up, but you can just try and gently share and try and create opportunities for them to speak up. And there are alternative treatments like just a um, EMDR therapy to help um, to trigger, to change those patterns of, of thought behaviors. And Explain um, to people what's EMDR. So EMDR, I did this after, um, you know, having encountered, it was for post-traumatic stress after having seen John and I had a great therapist who was well-trained and you have to find a therapist who is well uh, sensory sort of or um, reorientation, if you will, and you head that have vibrating pulsing down that have these vibrating and as to to other images that will take you from the difficult image, peaceful image to change the association. But there are all types of patients of, of, of you know, suicide. Those of us who have lost someone that we love to suicide. And they help, whether it's, it's the EMDR therapy or cognitive behavioral therapies or magnetic pulse uh, therapy and light therapies. There's even a nasal spray now. So there are other alternatives that are emerging, but you have to be pre- proactive with your um, with your doctors as well to make sure that you can have access to these other treatments that are out there. Um, besides just like the program John was in would say, it gets better. They had, you know, little bumper stickers for that. And you wouldn't tell somebody with terminal cancer that it gets better. So you have right. to... Like no, say that it can, it can be worse and, but it, it, you know, you can, you can manage this if you work with us. So it's get it's gets better as to a, uh, too much of a, you know, cliche and cliche right. is not work. Right. And that's why I said it is manageable, but it's work. You have to put in the time to be proactive, to help yourself. Exactly. Um, you know, suicide is the easy way out. That's, it's not, no, it's not. Um, like I said, the, the devastation and the tsunami that you leave behind to mm-hmm. family and friends, um, you have no idea. And, yeah. you know, I, I want to leave by s- stating to those out there that do suffer with mania, you know, schizophrenic, depression, PTSD, uh, psychosis, whatever. Um, I'm going to leave you with Kevin Hines name and I use him and talk about him 
so much because not only have I met him, he did a podcast with me, um, interviewing me on my story, because Kevin was one of the very few that survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And wow, I don't know if any of you have been over that bridge. It is ominous and huge. And he suffers still to this day with all of those. But it's manageable now. He knew he needed help. He was lucky to be to survive, to be alive after falling. That was a 75 mile an hour in four seconds, 24 stories. He broke his spine. I mean, it, it, it was an unbelievable story. And so he is a living testament that you can get better. He's married, his wife, he praises her like I cannot tell you. And, you know, he's just a great guy. Reach out to him if you need to. You can go to his YouTube channels. He records nonstop. He travels the world. But my point about this is he suffers still with all of that. Even after 15 psych ward stays after mm -hmm. the fall, which was 20 years ago. He's alive now. And like he states, be here tomorrow. Suicide is never the answer. So I say that to those that are listening. And again, should you have any questions for Margie, you know, reach out on her Facebook page if you are on Facebook to um, uh, Finding Color in the Darkness, as well as she is on Instagram. And then you said it's Finding Color in the Darkness um, at gmail.com. Right. But I also, Kevin Hines' story is remarkable. And I just wanted to add something too for anybody who is contemplating suicide that many people who um, are, uh, well, many of us are animal lovers, but I know John was, and, and many I hear about who've uh, taken their lives were great animal lovers. John's dog, this is almost five years later, still suffers um, after having lost her her dad. And oh. she, every time the, the anniversary of his death and when the fall changes, she starts to get very despondent and will have nightmares and, and tremble in the night and cry. So wow. remember just the humans that you're leaving behind, but your your for children <laughs> and loved ones. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. when you take your life, you not only leave behind your family wondering why you didn't come home, but your pet wondering mm -hmm. why you didn't come home. Exactly. Yeah, well, thank you, Margie. That was excellent. I'm glad you were, uh, you shared that with us. And I'm, you know, I think that it will help a lot of other parents and, and loved ones that have lost somebody or found somebody that way, because that's traumatizing. Um, mm -hmm. I can't even imagine that. So uh, I thank you so much. And I know that we will be in touch. Yes, and thank you, Jill, for, for having me on this podcast. And uh, thank you for the for the great work you do. And, um, and for mentioning Kevin Hines stories. He is a remarkable um, yeah. man. What a what he story. really is an inspiration. <laughs> You are mm -hmm. so welcome and enjoy your day, right? It's another day above ground. Another day above ground. There you go. <laughs> That's right. I always say it beats the alternative. That's right. Carpe diem. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. All right. All right. You take care. You. I'll talk to you. You too, soon. Jill. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.